It's been over a year now since In The Key Of Q launched. In our archive, you can find over 50 interviews of queer musicians from around the world and hear their music from rap Unaware of my proclivities to self-sabotage to country soul and rock. These episodes are available on the main feed. You can access them via the website at inthekeyofq.com or wherever you normally listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dan here. Thanks for downloading this episode. Have you enjoyed more than 10 episodes of this podcast? And if so, please consider financially supporting it over at patreon.com slash inthekeyofq, where you'll be rewarded with exclusive content. You are genuinely helping to keep the series in production, and more importantly, to give a space for queer voices to be heard. This week's guest discusses how HIV brought him dangerously close to dying, and the effects that crystal meth addiction has had on his personal life. The episode also contains discussions of suicide, so listener discretion is advised. Share your thoughts about today's episode on social media, use the hashtag queermusic, or email me direct on podcast at inthekeyofq.com. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, rate, and review the show on your podcast provider. All that's left to say is enjoy the episode. After I got the diagnosis, I started having lots of unprotected sex because I thought, well, why did I even bother to be careful if I still managed to, to have this? Uh, in retrospect, I just wish I'd have just, you know, if it was going to happen, I should have just enjoyed it, you know. Hello, I'm Dan Hall. When I grew up, I almost never heard pop songs where openly queer men sang about their truths, and it made me feel invisible. There were the occasional heroes like Jimmy Somerville, Mark Almond, and Andy Bell, but in the tsunami of 1980s heteronormative pop, I felt silenced. But these days there are plenty of songs where I can hear openly queer men singing their truths and this podcast is all about finding and sharing this music and speaking with the musicians who create it. Music helps us feel connected, feel heard and know that we are not alone on our queer journey. You're listening to In The Key Of Q. This week's guest speaks to us from the ever sunny seaside shores of Brighton in England. His first album was released in 2013. Titled Fact Machine, it was a velvet underground tinged alternative take on queer life and featured the tracks Tranquilize Lives, Bury Me Now, and Death Rattle. His most recent album is 2020's Night Sweats and Fever Dreams and is a complex and moving work inspired by the HIV AIDS epidemic. And his new album is Still Life, scheduled for release in early 2022. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Ollie Spleen. Ollie, hello. Hello. Once I dreamed of a garden Whose fountains brimmed with wine Whose emerald hills and pastures rolled With fruit on every vine Who swung a wild as ivory Harvest ripe and sweet for all around these beauties brown. I'm originally from Hastings. Um, in 2000, I fell ill with AIDS defining complications, uh, which I didn't know you could actually uh, recover from. But at the time, I had um, 
a pericardial effusion, which is a infection of the of the sac within the sac that surrounds the heart, which had to have fluid kind of drained from. I like kind of lost the use of my legs and had tuberculosis, and and I really thought I was going to to die. As far as I knew, it was a death sentence. Nineteen ninety nine was when I had my diagnosis. I remember the general thinking of doctors at the time. The general advice is that you can go a long period without needing to start on the antiretrovirals. I think that the effective antiretroviral medication had just uh, come in around that time. But as far as I knew, it was still a death sentence. I remember um, Freddie Mercury dying. I remember all of all of that stuff. And, you know, in the 90s, people were still um, dying fairly uh, frequently. They advised I start on the antiretroviral medication. I was being looked after by my mom in Hastings, and I felt ill there visited a doctor in Hastings who said, um, oh, this is, you're just adjusting to the medication, when in fact I was actually um, descending into full-blown AIDS by definition. Um, and it was only when I went up to London for a checkup the day after my niece was born that um, a nurse saw me and said, you need to be, you should have been put in hospital a, a long time ago, you're severely ill. You mentioned self-destructive behaviors prior to this. What, what were those self-destructive behaviors and, and what do you think the reason for them was? I felt like when I came out age 17, I had to come out to everyone individually because everyone, you know, swept it under the carpet, you know, pretending it wasn't happening. I still had girls coming on to me thinking, you know, they could turn me or whatever. And my my mom just, you know, I remember a year after coming out to her, she had a, a party with some friends um, and I was just talking about, you know, Oscar Wilde or, or Joe Orton or, you know, these gay role models, assuming that everyone knew I was gay. And then I remember going to the toilet and, and one of my mom's friends said to her, so is Oliver gay? And she burst into tears and went, I just don't know. And I was like... <sighs> I overheard that and I was like, I've, I've told you I am. You know, how many times do you have to come out? My dad admittedly has apologized uh, for things he said, but even before I reached puberty, my dad told me to beware of, of gay men, that they were pedophiles. And at that time, I realized I was gay. So I thought that I'd turn into a child molester. And um, so that was me from, you know, pre puberty thinking. I must kill myself before I turn into this horrible thing that society hates and everyone hates. I guess because the whole thing of gay people existing was so suppressed that if you hear of a boy getting molested, you assume that that's, you know, the gays and not that it's pedophiles, you know. So you put these things together. If if you don't understand the diversity of, of, of humanity, that you kind of bunch in everything that isn't, heterosexual missionary position as, as these kind of um, perverts and um, whatever. It's kind of the way that a lot of trans people are targeted now as, you know, being potential toilet rapists or, or, or whatever it is, uh, which, which is something that I don't, that's just completely fabricated, but it's a, it's a discourse to uh, create hysteria around um the fact that someone who who may 
or may not have had or have a penis might be using a, a, a women's toilet. There was a lot of negative uh, press around uh, gay men in particular and HIV and AIDS when I grew up. And I was also at school under Thatcher's Section 28 or Clause 28, which uh, prevented <clears throat> any kind of positive uh, discourse around um, gay and lesbian people at all. So there was this wall of silence and then... Um, I just wanted to talk, really. just wanted the dialogue to open up. It was hard times. Oh, I was very weird, always. I mean, um, my dad was worried for me when I was younger. Uh, 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 my mum kept a book when, um, when I was very young, and I read it. My dad was ex-Marines. He bought me some soldiers, and he, he was a bit concerned that I wouldn't get them to kill each other. My mum wrote in the book that I lined them up next to the bed and I kissed them goodnight before I went to bed. She also said I sung to the cat before I could sing. Uh, and um, and I used to get, I used to go to my grandma's house and put on her clothes. I had this hat. There was this kind of pink ruffled thing, which I loved so much. I wore it in the bath. I remember my mum saying if I, if, if I couldn't, uh, to, to, that I should get off the makeup if I'd been to my grandma's and they put makeup on me and I dressed up, which I loved. It felt really freeing. But I remember my mom saying, your dad won't like that. So I tried to get uh, the makeup off, or they tried, but clearly didn't succeed. I was only about four, and, and I just remember my dad going, the boy's been wearing makeup again, and he wouldn't look at me. He'd just growl and... and um, and then my mum would shout, just because he's in touch with his feminine side does not mean he's a homosexual. But then my dad uh, bought, because I was really into Jim Henson um, and um, puppets and such, my dad bought me a glove puppet frog. And from that point, the frog became very popular. Um, and everyone at school would kind of talk to the frog. So I had a kind of way of communicating with the wider world through the medium of the glove puppet frog. Oh, but Fraggle Rock was the thing that came along when I was uh, four or five, I think, um, on the TV. And, and all of a sudden I felt like I, I had something which I could belong to that I felt um, a, a deep connection with. There were five central characters that had very different personalities and, and it was about how they kind of learned to get on with each other. Um, and, you know, there was one, and also it was obsessed with death, li literally obsessed with death. And, 
and I was, God, I'm still obsessed with death uh, now. And it was weird because I think it was initially Jim Henson toyed with the idea of teaching children about death in an episode of Sesame Street when I think um, Mr. Hooper, uh, the, the shop owner, died in real life and he um, had Big Bird explain to the children uh, about death. And where, by the time Fraggle Rock came along, when they were kind of brainstorming what it would be about, they decided to kind of really go with this death thing. When I was uh, about five or six, I, I would dictate these stories to my uh, parents. Uh, we'd go to Knoll Park, which was a park which had uh, deer, and I'd get a little notebook with a picture of deer on the front, and I'd draw these pictures of the deer, and they all died in every story. There was death everywhere. It was, I was just became obsessed with uh, death. So, um, And I, uh, it took me a while to realize that I'd actually got a lot of that from Fraggle Rock. So I went in for the first um, test and it came back negative and they said to come back in three months time. So I came back in three months time and it was positive. And I remember going up to London for some examination. I think it was a colonoscopy or something. And um, the nurses being very disapproving of, oh, how could you put your mother through that? Because my mum was obviously distressed and I just felt people were being judgmental. So I, I just, I just, as far as I knew, I wouldn't get better. And, and even from that point, it was a, a long um, struggle. I remember the tuberculosis emerging in my lymph system some years later. And, but I did realize I wanted to live. And that decision, that choice, that realization was um, the, the absolute turning point. And I'd kind of achieved everything uh, by my... Uh, late twenties that I'd hoped I would do if I was given another year or two. And then I was ready to die. I was like approaching 30 going, um, okay, I've done it now. Um, you know, I'm ready to go now. I've done, I've done those things that I, I won't have the same sense of regret when I'm on my deathbed next time. And I, then I had to see psychologists about the fact that I'd prepared myself for death, but I hadn't really prepared myself for life beyond 30, I think I'll, whenever I do die, you know, be it in my 80s or whatever, I don't think I'll have the same sense of kind of regret and that I should have done so much more that I had when I was 22. When I started, I couldn't sing. So um, my um, two-year-old niece, my sister wasn't going to have any children. Then I was diagnosed and she found she was pregnant and decided to keep the child because we hadn't broken the news about my diagnosis to my mum yet. So she thought some, you know, good news about bringing life into the world would kind of counteract the the, the bad news. Um, turns out that my niece was born the day after, uh, a day before I was checked into hospital. So I travelled up to London thinking I would see the baby and 
went for my um, checkup and they, t- they told me that I was far too ill to see a newborn child and they hospitalized me. Uh, my niece is just about to turn, oh, this week, uh, turn 21. Um, and she's, you know, got a girlfriend, got tattoos. But she was two years old, sorry to go on a bit of a tangent. She was two years old when she uh, came back from nursery or something. And um, my sister said, oh, Tilly's learned to song, sing it to your uncle. And she went, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Oh, I wonder what you are. And I thought, well, I can't sing. But if I were to be in a band, uh, then I could sing like my two-year-old niece. And that'll work with punk. So that was my way into music, was uh, emulating my niece's uh, way of uh, singing. Um, but from there, eventually my voice developed and I started uh, using more of my natural uh, register, which was lower. Bowie was a, a tremendous influence, but he also opened my ears and eyes to other things, from the Velvet Underground, as you mentioned, to um, Jacques Brel. Uh, the idea of telling a story through songs and uh, lyrics was um, more appealing than um, than just the kind of throwaway uh, pop uh, sensibilities of the majority of British and American music. I had this, uh, I just wanted to move into areas which other people were kind of neglecting, certainly in English uh, or British uh, canon of, of, of songwriting. I love rock and roll. I mean, Little Rich is a huge... Uh, inspiration for me too, particularly with the kind of punk persona I had and that kind of androgynous, uh, intense way of um, conveying the songs. But uh, lyric-wise, rock and roll really kind of simplified things. And um, country music certainly has some roots in that um, wider narrative, which I connect with, like the chanson tradition. I mean, Jacques Brel's Belgian, not French. But um, you also get some of that in in German um, songwriting, Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht and, and, um, and various others. When you've killed the thing you loved, when you learn that love's where it's weighed around your neck like an albatross, carry it from day to day, keep it at all cost. Let it be your burden, like you're burdening your cross. This load weighs heavy on me, as leaden as my heart, which once was light and carefree, before it tore apart and plunged into this darkness, an eternal graveyard shift. Alone on a cold ocean, my boat was set adrift. I remember it in the in the nineties and two thousands. Mark Almond was doing a lot of that kind of Berlin story, sort of German storytelling stuff and it was just incredible it was beautiful these real torch songs i think i saw him at, at, at the royal albert hall and i was just transfixed it was amazing yeah mark i i mean uh i came to braille through bowie as i believe mark armand did as well but um but he there's definitely a lot of um similar uh, reference points uh i mean he i think he got me into asnavor because i saw i had the dvd of that 
performance where he did um, as Navarro makes him a man a man. So I was aware of she before then, um, but again, these are, uh, I mean, Asnavor was amazing. He'd sing his songs in five different languages. Um, but um, yeah, Mark Armand's definitely been <laughs> ahead of the curve with a lot of these things um, to, uh, to myself. Uh, he was also, as far as I know, the first to sing a song by Barbara, Barbara, basically the French uh, uh, singer who's, who's a huge influence on, 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 well, she's a huge inspiration to, to me recently. And I translate, I uh, worked on her song, L'Aigle Noir, The Black Eagle, um, a, an English version of that, which I released early this year on the EP, The Eagle and, and The Dove. And I thought no one had, had attempted to sing her in English until I uh, found uh, Mark Almond uh, singing, was it Incestuous Love or something? Uh, on one of his tracks, which was, which was one of hers. Would you say your queer identity is important in your music or is it just something that is in the background and not really that relevant? When I was young, I often wondered if life would be easier if I were female, uh, which is slightly easier to imagine than being a heterosexual male. Um, but I can't really separate myself from my experiences. I'm, I'm good friends with um, Adrian Goykulia, who's a, filmmaker who's the great nephew of Quentin Crisp and he he often he says that uh, as Quentin neared death uh, they realized that um that they were by definition transgender because the the question was always uh, you know my life could have been a lot easier if had I were born had I been born um female but Adrian would say that if Quentin were born female he would have uh, the, she would have been a very um, conservative, you know, average um, housewife, you know, and with with nothing much to say. And um, so, you know, it, the things that are obstacles in our life that do challenge us are the things that shape us. And I mean, I can't separate myself. I, I don't think I'd necessarily be, be a creative person or or anything. I don't know. Not to say that heterosexual women can't be amazingly creative because they can, but I, I just, you know, I just can't say how things would be different if I weren't queer because it is everything that I am. Now I can't fight against this blood. I'm much too tired to row Soon you'll see me sinking That's when I'll be good to go My hull is warm and rusty Where regrets like limpets grow As my albatross, an anchor Wants to drag me deep below Crystal meth is a drug which I come in contact with in America uh, at a time uh, when I, when they wouldn't let you into the country without a visa if 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 you were known to be HIV positive. So I tried to hook up with some people in America because um, my partner was going over there to be best man at a wedding, and the the people I hooked up with were meth addicts, and um, and I tried it then and and <laughs> realized. Um, these were people that I I needed an address to send my medication over to so that I wouldn't get turned away 
costume since Obama came in. He he has changed that law, which made it difficult for HIV positive people to enter the country. But that was when I first came in contact with with meth, and and it terrified me. And I was very glad that it hadn't come here at that stage, as far as I was aware. Then a couple of years later, it cropped up all over the place, and I did find myself doing it um, a few times. But by the time I met my uh, then partner, um, I realized that he had more of a problem. And I should have realized early on that part of the thing was that he was lying. Okay, the come down's just awful. The, the, what, but the way it affects you is that it's, I think it takes like more than a month to get out of your system for your brain chemistry to return to anything kind of like normalcy. So you might feel terrible a week or two later. And the only thing that you can think of to fix the way that you're feeling is to take more of the drug. That's why, I mean, when you talk about addiction, people think it's something that you're doing every day. But in the case of my um, then partner, it would be a fortnight later we'd have one good week where it would seem like he he'd say, I never want to do that drug again. And I'd believe him. And then, uh, and then I'd be waiting for him and thinking, I was always just like be on the verge of writing a love song. He'd say, when are you going to write a nice song about me? And I'd be in the middle of writing a song about, you know, how positive I was feeling about him. And then I'd go, Oh, where is he? And that's when I'd realize he'd uh, disappeared and, and was getting high. Very early on, when we went on our first date, he was late for that. And he told me he had gotten high. And I could see it in his eyes. Um, and I said, well, did you have sex? And he said, yes. So I said to him, do you want to be in an open relationship then? And this was around the time I said, do you want to, are you trying to give up this drug? Because I don't really want to be going out with someone who's doing this all the time. And he said, yes, he did want to to quit the, the, the drug. So I said I'd support him and I wouldn't do any substances myself other than a bit of weed and alcohol. Um, and um, and he told me that he had had sex with someone. So a while later, when, when he disappeared, I just, you know, one way of kind of taking back control or feeling that I had some kind of sense of autonomy over my own life is I had sex with someone. And when I told him that, he said, I can't believe you would do this. And and I said, but you told me that you had had sex with someone early on. And he said, no, I didn't. I never said that. And this was when the kind of gaslighting thing started to creep in. But perhaps I can reverse this curse. Maybe it's not too late. Or lift me from this darkness Show me this is not my fate I'd get texts from him when he was high where he'd send me a photograph It was a still from a porn film and he'd go, looks like you're having fun and I'd go, what are you trying to, to say? Turns out he was high watching a porn film thinking that the person in the porn film was me having sex in that moment so he'd take stills from the porn film of this person that looked nothing like me, had none of my tattoos, and say, looks like you're having fun. I remember going to the shop, like, uh, 
20 minutes, 10 minutes, and he'd managed to inject himself, get high on meth. And I came back and he said, a face had come to the window and told him that I was having sex with everyone. And I was like, well, I just popped to the, I've just been 20 minutes. And he said, I know what you're doing. They, they told me that you're having sex with people. And it took me a while to realize that all of this stuff was, aside from his meth uh, psychosis, it was, he was projecting everything that he was doing onto, onto me. And I was trying to be open and honest in that relationship thinking that that was the way to kind of um, get to the root of things and resolve, you know, problems. But all of that honesty was being turned against me because he was just, everything was, was a fabrication. And, uh, oh, it's just, it was really nightmarish. But I stayed with him. I mean, my friend, she she was setting up uh, profiles, trying to figure out what he was getting up to. And I told her not to intervene. And, and my mom didn't really know the, the full story, but she told me, you know, you're, you're a gay man. You have to tell your friend that if she's going to try and interfere with your relationships, that she can't be your friend anymore. And I said, well, she's severely depressed and suicidal and and I know that she'll use that as a threat and my mom said well that's emotional blackmail you have to tell her so I I, I wasn't in Brighton at the time uh, but I told her what my mom had said and she, she she said oh I know now what I must do and I said oh for god's sake don't give me this called her mom up and I said she's threatening suicide again and her mom said I've talked to her she won't do anything stupid and then the next day they found her body but I stayed with him for the rest of that year and even longer because he was threatening suicide. And the idea of the two people closest to me killing themselves in the same year, I just couldn't cope with it. I thought that would be the end of me. So it was only when I came into the spring of the, of the following year, which was, um, I guess, uh, six years ago now or something, um, that I had found the strength to, to leave him. Crystal meth, uh, I've done it before uh, in a sexual context and it did feel great at the time, but I've come to realize that no amount of that drug is 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 good. It's like, it, it turns people so, it's almost like it manifests this kind of negativity and paranoia and all this stuff. Um, if you're with someone who has this uh, problem, I mean, there's only so many times you can forgive them and believe them. And if it really has a hold over them, I would, I would, I would, the advice I would have given to myself is to, to have gotten out of this sooner. Deep in the soil where decay's roots are ripe, where things crawl and uncoil. Death nourishes life, the sun keeps on burning, the world keeps on turning, the cycles of death and rebirth, and out of the dirt blossoms burst.
touches so fragile As our fate is fixed Ashes to ashes and dust And out of the earth blossoms burst I, I just can't have uh, manipulative uh, people in my life anymore so I've, I've cut out some some other friends who I kind of tolerated prior to, to to what I went through because I just don't have the psychic energy anymore and I think that's the thing you need to put your own self first um you know toxic people I don't believe that my partner would have necessarily been intrinsically uh, toxic or narcissistic or or however you want to define it had it not been for his addiction I, I did see glimmers of the potential and uh, every other week seemed to be good times. Um, so I really hope that he could uh, give it up. There's only so much you can take. You really have to put yourself uh, first. I know it's completely um, affected. The, I've ne I haven't been in a relationship since. I just, I'm just very wary of of people and I just, you know, focus on myself and the music now. And Ollie, what queer artists are you listening to yourself at the moment? I did like what Little Dance X was doing with the, uh, with the videos and stuff and being really in your face for pop music. I think, um, you know, that's, that's very widely commercially viable. It's really rubbing. Um, it's really getting under the skin of, uh, it's doing everything that I think, uh, music sh should do as far as upsetting the right people like these um these uh conservative christian american uh groups petty people being annoyed brings me a lot of pleasure yeah i mean the idea of uh that they were saying oh you know gay people will go to hell so he has he he puts that in his video and lap dances satan and kills him and you know i just think that's just brilliant I think there's a little Nas X lyric that goes, shoot a baby in my mouth while riding it or something like that. And I just love that. I was just like, how many, how many pop songs talk about someone coming in your mouth? Yeah. Not many, not enough. Yeah. Well, the, the criticism was that, oh, he, he appeals to kids or he had a children's book out, but you know, he's allowed to develop and grow as an artist himself. I think a lot of the controversy initially was that his uh, first hit was getting played on country radio and they didn't realize he was black. And as soon as they did, then they tried to, to pull it. So um, so that worked in his advantage for, for raising his profile. And I think he's really clever at, at, at knowing how to how to get under the skin of those people and, and then raise, raise his profile off the back of their outrage. So I, I have a lot of respect for that.
And Ollie, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you online? Um, well, as far as listening to the music, if you go on Spotify or any other kind of streaming outlet, not that they give artists much <laughs> money. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's Ollie Spleen, O-L-I Spleen. Um, but Bandcamp's the best one, actually. Uh, if you if you uh, buy music or stream from Bandcamp, which would be uh, Ollie com or something. I think it comes first. But anyway, you just put it in as a search and um, and I'm all over the place. YouTube. I, did, I shot my own videos last year because we had a video shoot planned uh, and then COVID hit. I literally had symptoms just before the first lockdown and we'd booked a church. It was supposed to be Funeral Dirge as a music video where I was a corpse jumping out of my own coffin conducting my funeral. And then I ended up with, uh, as far as I know, COVID and um, cancelled the whole thing, even though we had a window where we could have shot it before the first lockdown, but just out of a sense of responsibility, because I was feeling very ill. I didn't want to like go in there and inf infect everyone. So I ended up locking down my sisters in the country, but she converted a shed for me and posted food through the window. But uh but yeah, in that time, I learned to uh, edit my own music videos. But hopefully uh, soon I'll be doing another proper video with a, with a, a, a team. I'm just working on that now. And Ollie, what do you think your 15-year-old self would think of you and the man that you've become? I think they would be quite... I, I wouldn't quite believe it because I never thought that I could, you know do any of the things I'm doing. So I would be impressed in that sense. I might be slightly conf uh, in awe or repulsed by some of the sexual things I've gotten up to. I mean, there's this sense of like having a lot of fantasies when I was that age, but they were so, f they would confuse me and uh, they were so far from my reality. And I guess I've kind of got a lot of that out of my system since then. Now, Ollie, all the way through this episode, we've been playing clips of your music. But if there was one particular track that you think would act as a fantastic gateway song into your catalogue, what do you think that track would be and why? Just a Dream is one that um, actually I started uh, soon after my hospitalization. And it was about how the um, you wake from the kind of nightmares that you had as a child where your mother would come and comfort you but the uh waking world is as much of a nightmare as the the realm of of dreams so there's no kind of escape from the the living nightmare go back to sleep it's just a dream toothless torn from mother's breast And smashed against the cold concrete It's just a dream, go back to sleep Go back to sleep, it's just a dream The words that every mother said Racked and writhing in your bed And torn apart 
at every scene go back to sleep it's just a dream but your dreams don't offer you distraction the horrors manifest within your mind drift on a cold sea of strange abstraction the torment and the terror intertwine just a dream I wake choked with a cotton breath my mouth stuck shut with gum of flesh and nothing remains as it seems go back to sleep it's just a dream Many, many thanks, Ollie, for joining us here today here on In The Key of Q. It's been fantastic for you to share your music and your stories with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been lovely. Within my mind Adrift on a cold sea of strange abstraction The torment and the terror Many thanks for listening to this episode with Ollie Spleen. Remember to listen to him on all the usual streaming platforms and of course over at Bandcamp. We have exclusive Key of Q content over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q and there you can join other listeners by supporting the show's production costs for as little as five US dollars a month. Tell me what you thought about today's episode with Ollie on social media using the hashtag queer music or email me direct on podcast at in the key of Q.com and rate and review the show on your podcast provider. It really, really helps. Our theme tune is by Paul Lee Nido at unstoppablemonsters.com and thanks to Paul Smith, our PR guru and digital brand manager, Olivier Name. And thanks to Kajen Kanther and Murray Lang for their support in making this episode. The show is presented and produced as ever by me, Dan Hall, and made at Pup Media Consultancy. I'll see you next Tuesday. Go back to sleep, it's just a dream My mouth's hardened by my bed Cut with my fingernails My head should heal my wounds And help me keep The sanity